Hey, please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, this evening, excuse me, to Luke 13. Luke 13, looking at verses 18 through 35 tonight, continuing on in our series, the title of the message, The Nature of the Kingdom. Throughout the extent of Jesus' ministry, it, it became apparent that the Jews in Israel had a fundamental misunderstanding of the kingdom that Jesus Christ was announcing. Jesus offers compassion, undergird by the reality of judgment to those who refuse. And within this context, Jesus calls them unto urgency, ensuring that they were on the right side of God and his wrath, and they needed to do that quickly. They needed to do that um, with this urgency, because when judgment comes, it will come swiftly. We continue on these themes this evening through several different teachings of our Lord, all pointed toward the nature of this kingdom which he has come to proclaim and which he will one day return to establish. And like with last week, it's our privilege to turn our hearts inward. Remember, uh, when we approach the Word of God uh, more generally, and Jesus' teachings more specifically, it's very important that we use these teachings to turn our hearts inward, not to turn our hearts outward. Now, there are times to turn our hearts outward when Jesus is talking about winning the lost, when he's talking about these things. There, there are certainly times to think about outward as we consider culture and society and the church at large and, and our own church and these sorts of things. But But by and large, when Jesus is speaking to people, what he is calling them to do is he's calling them to examine their own hearts. When he's talking to his disciples, when he's preaching the gospel, even uh, speaking to his disciples about the gospel, he is encouraging each man to search his own hearts. And indeed, we might realize why in a more real way when we get to the end of the gospels and we find that one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot was not one of Christ's sheep. And so it was that a man spent several years with Jesus hearing these messages of the gospel, but he was not one of Christ's sheep. He had never actually submitted himself to the realities of the gospel. And if he had ever turned his heart inward, his mind inward on these teachings rather than outward, he most assuredly would have understood these things. So this message should not give us extra cause to judge others, but rather extra cause for us to look inward and to judge ourselves. And we pick up this evening in verse 18 of Luke 13, where the Bible says this, verse 18 and 19. Then said he, unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Jesus speaks again, presumably to his adversaries, uh, under whom he was addressing. Remember, we're kind of jumping back and forth among contexts, among audiences. He'll speak to his disciples. He'll speak to the multitudes. <clears throat> right now, I believe, we, we would believe from the, te- the context that he is speaking to his adversaries. And he asks a question, unto what is the kingdom of God like? What on this earth can we liken the kingdom of God unto? It's a fundamental question because the fundamental misunderstanding of the character of the kingdom of God demanded clarification. Jesus has made it very clear that there is no one who gets in by default, right? 
as if a certain people group gets a free pass. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of this chapter, he said specifically, verse 3, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And now Jesus is going to forge links between the spiritual and the physical in order to help them understand the kingdom of God better. And he first gives the illustration of a mustard seed. He says the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and put into the ground and it grew and became a great tree into which the birds lodged. Now it's important to understand what Jesus is not saying here. Mustard seeds don't grow into trees. They grow into plants. Mustard plants grow to be typically about two feet tall. So if mustard seeds don't grow into plants, then what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus uses the mustard seed because of how very small the seed is. Mustard seeds are around one millimeter in diameter. If you are looking at the screen behind me, you see uh, the comparison of a mustard seed to a grain of rice. And you'd see that a mustard seed, uh, you could probably fit, uh, uh, well, there's about two mustard seeds, maybe three, depending on the exact size of the seed, to every grain of rice. They are excessively small. So Jesus uses the size of the mustard seed to emphasize just how small the kingdom of God begins. Just how small this seed of the kingdom of God begins, whether it's in the heart of a man, whether it's in a society, whatever it might be. It begins so very small, seemingly insignificant. But then he uses the illustration of a tree, that it grows into a tree, not because he is trying to state that mustard seeds grow into mustard trees. He's not trying to state that. That's not the purpose of his illustration here. The purpose was for him to find the very smallest seed that the people listening could possibly relate to, and that would be the mustard seed, and then the very tallest plant that grows from a seed, the seed-bearing trees and the seed-bearing plants, the very tallest plant possible, which would be large trees, to relate to what how the kingdom of God finishes. So it begins like a mustard seed, it finishes like a grand tree. That's what he's attempting to do here, pairing them together to teach a lesson. And the lesson is this, as we've mentioned, the kingdom of God begins in every context, very small, seemingly insignificant, humble, we might use that word, but it grows large and strong, so much so that even those who are not in the kingdom, the birds of the air, those that are not a part of the tree itself, are influenced by its presence. And this illustration seeks to communicate the strength and influence of the kingdom over people who receive it and over the world around it. Let's consider Jesus' second illustration and then we'll talk about these things together. Verses 20 to 22. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Jesus again asks a question, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? Let's think about this again. Let's liken this again. Let's find something else that is like the kingdom of God. And this time he likens it unto leaven. 
Now, it was not too long ago we mentioned how regularly leaven is used in the Bible as a picture of sin and of corruption. Because leaven is a fermenting agent, the use of leaven affects the whole loaf. That if you put leaven into a loaf of bread uh, as you before, before you bake it and you, you bake the bread, that that leaven is going to affect the entire loaf of bread as a leavening agent. Jesus uses this illustration given here in Luke and also in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. And he does so in this context as the only time in the Bible where leaven is used positively, as a positive attribute. All throughout the Bible, leaven is seen as something bad. It's, it's a tainting agent. It's an agent that gets into something pure and it fundamentally changes its character and it, it, it causes it to, to be tainted. And so Paul, uh, Paul will talk about a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, and he's warning the church about allowing sin into their lives. In the Old Testament, of course, we know in the law they had to purge out the leaven before the feast, particularly the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? And they couldn't have any unleavened bread in their house, and, and they certainly uh, had, had different times of the year where they could not eat leavened bread, leavened bread. And all of this was because of this symbolic picture of leaven as sin. But here we see it in a positive sense. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Now he's not saying the kingdom of heaven is like sin. Remember, leaven is just leaven. Just because it's used regularly as a picture of sin doesn't mean that every time we use leaven, it has to picture sin. Jesus says in this case, it pictures something positive. A person puts it into bread, it causes the bread to, to rise. So he says a woman takes a little leaven and she hides it in three measures of meal. This word measure here is a little bit ambiguous as we would study study the history of it. Uh, some say that a measure is about three gallons of dry goods. If that were the case, then we're talking nine gallons of, of uh, um, wheat here or a flour. That's a lot of flour. And this woman puts some leaven into it, and this little bit of leaven into this very large thing of flour causes the whole lump to be leavened. Again, it's an illustration to emphasize the transformative nature of the kingdom that a foreign agent this would be a positive foreign agent enters into a different agent and fundamentally changes his character so i think that you can see that there's two different flavors to these two illustrations about the kingdom so the bible says next jesus went throughout all the villages traveling toward jerusalem we know we've seen already all the way back to luke 9 that jesus has set his face toward jerusalem and he's going in that direction but but consider carefully with me these two illustrations and what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God through them. Both of these illustrations imply something small, fundamentally small beginnings. Small mustard seeds, some leaven, the amount of which we don't know, but by implication it would be a much smaller amount than, say, nine gallons of dry flour. Now, the first implies small beginnings externally. Growing to be a great force, that the kingdom of God will begin externally small, but grow great in influence. That it's a small thing that becomes a big thing, externally speaking. The second implies small beginnings internally, bringing about fundamental change in the whole. So this is something that you're placing into something else internally, if we can call it that. The one is something small growing to be something big. The other is something small influencing something big. Or influencing the many. A small, minimal addition affecting every aspect. 
Such is the kingdom of God. When the truths of the kingdom enter into the life of an individual, it fundamentally changes them. That might be what we would consider the leaven illustration. Or we could consider it a group illustration as well. That one person that has the kingdom of God within him, or the the nature of the kingdom of God entering into the person, fundamentally changes the character of the whole. When the truths of the kingdom begin to grow in a life, a home, a community, a culture, it becomes a great force. This might be the tree illustration. That as we as a whole, a church, begin to exercise the nature of the kingdom of God in this community, it will fundamentally change the community. That doesn't mean everybody will become a part of the tree, but it does mean that even those who are not a part of the tree, the fowl, will rest in the branches of the tree. And this is the design and nature of the kingdom of God. It grows, it stands, it influences. It's not like an army destroying, consuming, overcoming, bowling everyone over as it, as it rolls. It's like a tree growing, standing, benefiting. It's like leaven entering in and then fundamentally altering the character of those who receive it. So we continue in verses 23 to 25. Then said one unto him, speaking to Jesus, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. So someone, we do not know who, asks a question of Jesus. Jesus has been teaching about the need for repentance. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He has been warning men to get right before the day of judgment. And it seems at some point someone, through thought and observation, began to realize that the number of people who seemed to understand and receive Jesus' message genuinely was much smaller than the number of people who heard Jesus' message. This might also play off of the illustrations themselves. That as Jesus speaks about the influence of the kingdom upon the world around it, He might say, well, if leaven is a representative body of those who have received the kingdom, then Jesus is saying that just a little leaven fundamentally changes the lump. Why is the leaven so small? Why is the kingdom so small in that illustration? Or when we think of the mustard seed, it's a small seed that grows into a big plant. So there's strength there, but it starts out so small and there's still fowls that are resting in his branches. Why are there external things? So he may have been thinking along those lines as well. And he asks the question, Lord, are there few that be saved? Jesus doesn't really answer the question directly in the context, but he does still give clarity. He says that the way is straight. That word in the Greek meaning narrow or constrained. You notice there it's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. 
as in a straight line, but S-T-R-A-I-T, as in the Bering Strait, right? What is a strait geographically? A strait geographically is a narrow area, right? It's a constrained area. It's an area where there's not as much room as, say, a sea or an ocean or a lake or whatever it might be. And so we have the right kind of straight here. And Jesus says, straight, narrow, constrained is the way. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So, in this parallel passage in Matthew, we find a bit of a clearer answer, that because the way is narrow that leads to life, there are, relatively speaking, few people that will ever find it. The way is narrow. So he calls upon all who are listening to strive to enter into this narrow gate, this narrow way. And he warns that many will seek to enter in, but will not be able to enter in. Now that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? That there are those who will want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but will not be able to enter in. That there will be those who want to enter into the way of life, but will not find it. And we have to ask the question at this point, what does this mean? There are many, in other systems of interpretation, we would particularly consider the very popular system of, of Reformed theology or Calvinism today, who believe this verse proves that only some can get to heaven, and therefore some are actually and literally unable to get to heaven. That there is a certain contingency of the population that has no capacity ever to even be able to get to heaven. That they, they don't have any chance. Uh, that, that if they are not chosen of God, then, they, then, then they're out. With, without any choice of their own. Without any will of their own. And even within the context, this really makes no sense. Why would Jesus encourage men to strive if they could not enter in? And if they were going to enter in by default, then why would he, why, why, why should they have to strive? The idea that Jesus is calling them to strive to enter in implies that it's possible for them to do so, but that it's not guaranteed that they will. Right? But Jesus says, though it be possible, they will not be able. Do we have a contradiction here? What is Jesus talking about? Well, the concept is quite simple when one thinks about it um, from a certain perspective. There are people all around the world who are trying to get to the kingdom of heaven in any number of ways. Many are trying to earn their way into the kingdom of heaven through good works. Some are trying to buy their way into the kingdom of heaven with money or time or devotion Some are trying to slip in through what they would perceive to be loopholes in the religious or spiritual system. Many are just kind of hoping that God lets everyone in and so they're taking their chances. And on the day of judgment, it will not only be those who have put their their faith in Jesus who will want to get into heaven. There will be many more on that day who want to get into heaven. 
And so Jesus warns that when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, all who stand on the outside are out. They are, they are, they are without. They are on the outside and they cannot come in. Similar to Jesus' illustration at the end of Luke 12 where he encourages his listeners to reconcile with God before they arrive at the judge because once they arrive it is too late. In the same way Jesus is saying you need to identify the way to get into the house now while the door is open because once God shuts the door no one else gets in. But Jesus says many will try and this is what he's saying here. Many will try to get in, but won't be able to because they didn't come the right way. Not because they are spiritually incapable, but because they're trying to climb through a window and Jesus says you won't be able to climb through the window. Because they're taking a ladder and trying to jump down the chimney and Jesus is saying you won't be able to get in through the chimney. There's only one way to get in, and it's through the door. It's through the narrow gate, the straight gate. And if you don't come in through the straight gate, then you will not come in. So many will try, but will not be able to. Not because God is unwilling, but because they're not doing it God's way. Does that make sense? On the day of judgment, people will know and say, Lord... Open the door and let us in, and he'll, he will say, I don't know who you are. Let's continue in the context. Verse 26 and 27. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not. I, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Lord, we've associated with you. We've eaten with you. We've drunken with you. You have taught in our streets. But Jesus will answer, I don't know you. Again, we receive some clarity in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount on this. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 tell us this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name have done many wonderful works and I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These proclaim not only to have eaten and drunk with the Savior, but these proclaim to have prophesied in his name, to have cast out devils in his name, to have done many wonderful works in his name. But what they never did was enter into the kingdom. What they never did was accept Jesus Christ as their Savior on his terms. They used his power. They were the fowl that were resting in the trees. They were the ones that were taking advantage of the power of the kingdom, of the fruit of the kingdom, but they were never a part of the kingdom themselves. They were never fundamentally changed by the nature of the kingdom. And this is the warning which Jesus gives. Make no mistake, there are people all over this world who want to get into the kingdom of God. Make no mistake that many of the Muslims that are around the world doing all sorts of things, whether it's just the religious things that Muslims do or whether it's uh, the extension of the religious things that they do through violence and evil, all of those things that they are doing express their desire to enter into the kingdom of God. Make no mistake that Orthodox Judaism is deeply desiring to enter into the kingdom of God. Make no mistake that uh, the 
the Hindis and uh, those that worship their ancestors and, and uh, all of these various and vast religions desire to enter into the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, humanism, thinking they are God, are seeking to enter into a kingdom as well. But they're going about it the wrong way. Whether through the deceit of others or the deceit of self, through false teaching or through idolatry, many will seek to enter in. But when the day comes, they shall not be able. Not because God was not willing. We know this from many passages of Scripture. We'll know this as we get a little bit farther in our context. But we know this as well from verses like Second Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, either the Bible is true or it isn't. Either God wants some to perish and go to hell for whatever reason, or God wants everyone to get to heaven. We can't have it both ways. And the Bible tells us that God desires everyone to be there. That's what the Bible tells us. But it isn't enough that God wants you there. You have to get there God's way. It isn't enough that you say, I want in the house, and then you just try to find some crack or crevice with which to get into the house. It doesn't work that way. It's not enough to say, I'm, I, I want to be in the house of the kingdom, so let's find an open window. Let's find an open orifice. Let's find, let's, let's tear a hole in the roof. It doesn't work that way. There's one way in. There's no back door. There's no side door. There's no open window. There's no open chimney. There's one way in, and it's through the narrow gate. You have to get there God's way. God's been very faithful to show you that way. But by the very nature of love and of faith, God will not force you there. You must strive to enter into the narrow gate. And all who is willing to receive, who is willing to enter in, will receive everlasting life. Because the door to the house is open until the master shuts it. Now this is for most of us the time of our death. For one generation it will be the time of the Lord's return perhaps. But each of us is calling to strive to enter in now. While there is still time. Before the door is shut and locked. Then Jesus gives a warning. He says in verses 28 through 30, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God and behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Remember Jesus is speaking to a Jewish people here. And that's important for us to understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. His message is given in a definitively Jewish context. And he warns these Jews that those who fail to find the narrow way that leads to life will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping signifies deep sorrow. Gnashing of teeth signifies great torment. The phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth is found five times in the Bible. Four of those five times it's found in Matthew, the one time here. Why so much in Matthew? Because this is a concept which Jesus is specifically and explicitly speaking to the Jews about. He gives it in such a deeply Jewish context. Now that's not saying others won't experience it. 
But what he is saying here is that there will be this extra level of sorrow and torment over those who were so close to the kingdom of God missing out on it. And that's the whole point of these three verses. Consider the four times this phrase is used in Matthew. Matthew 8, 12, Jesus says, but the children of the kingdom, there it is. That would be those who are Jews, those who are God of God's chosen people, those who are of the nation of Israel, those who God had chosen to be a part of the physical kingdom, which he was seeking to manifest on this earth uh, initially through that chosen people. He says, the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty two thirteen. then said the king to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth there in, in that would have been in one of his uh, parables. Matthew twenty four fifty one and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Matthew 25, 30, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, one of his parables there. Three out of four times we find weeping of gnashing of teeth in Matthew linked to the concept of outer darkness, separated from God, separated from the kingdom, the essence of being separated from the kingdom, the essence of being outside that door when that door closes is that there will be sorrow and there will be torment. Those who, after the house is locked, by the master are on the outside have eternal conscious sorrow and eternal conscious torment awaiting them. The Bible calls this the second death. And Jesus says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this weeping and gnashing of teeth will be a reality when many Jews, when many who think they're in simply because they're children of the kingdom, uh, children of those who entered into the kingdom, that their fathers had at one point entered in, that they will be these children, uh, that, that they have these, this inheritance, that they have this heritage. And Jesus says many of them who see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their fathers, as their heritage will see them sit down in the kingdom and they'll see the prophets sit down in the kingdom, but they themselves will be cast out of the kingdom. They will be on the outside of the door and they'll peek in through the window and they'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but not just them. But then they'll see all of these people whom the Jews look down upon. Uh, the Gentile world and they'll peek through that window and they'll see Abraham and they'll see Isaac and they'll see Jacob and then they'll see all of these Gentiles. And the Gentiles will be in, but they'll be out. Why? Because the Gentiles were going to be willing to enter into the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. And because the Jews were, and indeed are today as well, convinced that they can enter in another way. And to this idea, Jesus cites one of the great principles of God's design at the end here in verse 30. There are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. We see this principle time and again. We've studied it, and we will, we will study it again in Luke. Consider this principle together. Let it sear itself upon our hearts. Paul would say it this way, and then Peter Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. 
That's how Paul expressed it to the Jews. Quoting the scriptures that Jesus is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to the Jewish people, but those who will believe won't be ashamed of it. 1 Peter 2, verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. The man, Jew, Gentile, woman, man, child, adult, who understands and who is humble enough to believe the word of God like a child shall not be ashamed. Faith always precedes blessing. The humble are exalted. Those who believe will not regret it. In the words of our Lord himself in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 9, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So we continue. Verse 31. The same day there came... Certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. Here we have a very interesting circumstance, which kind of precedes our last little bit of teaching, where the Pharisees were seeming to warn Jesus that if he doesn't leave, Herod would kill him, as if the Pharisees cared. Most of Jesus' ministry, recall, was in Galilee, not in Judea. Jesus is now headed down to Jerusalem. His face is set towards Jerusalem. He's headed toward that end. Most likely here, what we're seeing is a dishonest attempt to get rid of Jesus as a problem. It could be that the Pharisees had some sort of pure motive in saying, look, this man hates you. You're a teacher in, in, in uh, Israel. And, and uh, as we might say it this way, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we don't like Herod. So we'll try to keep you safe just because you're a Jew. And he's not. But more than likely, it was somewhat backhanded. They tell Jesus here, Herod is going to kill you in an attempt to get Jesus perhaps to leave their area, to get out of their hair. But Jesus wouldn't leave. In, de- in fact, he couldn't leave because his face was steadfastly set towards Jerusalem, Luke nine fifty one. So Jesus replies, and he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for I it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Jesus calls Herod a fox here. Foxes are known to be cunning and tricky, but also to be quite flighty. They are, they are, are hunters, but they are also timid. They, they, they don't stand up to foes. They flee. They're fast. They flee. They kill things that are weaker than them, but they flee against things that are stronger than them. They flee against, uh, they, they, they're not fighters. The fox will hide, he will trick, he will play dirty, if you will. It's a good illustration of Herod, who, if we remember his interaction with John the Baptist, arrested him, but didn't want to kill him because he knew he was a prophet and he feared the people until he was backed into a corner by his illegitimate wife and her daughter. And so Herod is very much like a fox, killing that which is weaker than him, but fleeing at that which would be daunting or stronger than him. 
And Jesus had a message for Herod. He said this, I cast out devils, I cure ailments today and tomorrow and on the third day I will be perfected. In this, Jesus is promising his resurrection. He's promising that though he will be put to death, that his work will be perfected on the third day. A resurrection which would be made possible by Herod's cowardice before the people in interviewing him, sending him back to Pilate. He'll be a part of that process. Nevertheless, Jesus tells these Pharisees, however, today, tomorrow, and the next day, for the foreseeable future, for the next little while, I've got to walk. I've got work to do. And until then, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to flee to the shadows. I'm going to do the work that I need to do. And then Jesus shows this beautiful, ironic sense of humor that he has. And he says this, he says, I've got to keep going. I've got to get down to Jerusalem for it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. Do you see what he's saying there? He's basically saying, look, every prophet of God has died in Jerusalem. I would hate to break the trend, the the, the trend here and not die in Jerusalem. If you're going to kill me and you are going to kill me, the nation of Israel is going to reject me as a prophet and they're going to kill me just like you rejected and killed the prophets of years gone by, just like you've stoned the prophets, just like you've rejected the prophets, just like you've hated the prophets, just like you've thrown the prophets into prison and made them uh, eat nothing but bread and water and eventually watch them waste away. I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those prophets and I've got to suffer the same fate. Let's let's not break tradition here. He gets a little snarky, doesn't he? He's sarcastically, in a way, pointing out that what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing today is absolutely no different than any of the generations who have killed and maimed the prophets. The same fathers... Who, who did these things. The Pharisees would acknowledge, yes, our fathers killed the prophets, those who had the legitimate message of God. And we know that now because of the captivity. And all those prophets before the captivity saying it was coming were killed and were maimed and were, 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 were beaten and were bruised for saying the captivity's coming. And now it's come, so we know that they were of God. So we believe them now. Jesus says, you're doing the same thing. You've done it again. And it's going to happen again. And then his tone becomes more grave. He kind of leaves the sarcastic humor behind. And he says something very grave, but very important. Verses 34 and 35, and this is where we'll close tonight. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? And ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus took no pleasure. He he may have gotten a little snarky there for a moment. But Jesus took no pleasure in the city of Zion and his people rejecting him. And knowing that this was going to happen. He longed for them to come to him. He longed to see them enter into the narrow gate that leads to life. He longed for them to be in the house when the master of the house closed and locked the door. But they were unwilling. And the scriptures make it abundantly clear that God desires men to come to him of their own accord. Because if they don't, then it's not love. It's not love if God makes it happen. I cannot force a person to love me. I can force a person to obey me. I can force a person to fear me. But I cannot force a person to love me. Love is a choice. 
Jesus says, I would have gathered you as a hen does her brood. Matthew says, as a hen does her chicks. But ye would not. But you were the one who was unwilling. Ye would not exercise your will toward me. And I am not going to force you. And so Jesus says to them, thus your house is left desolate. Thus the nation of Israel as a physical nation will be left destitute. Once Jesus would be killed, it would only be 40 years before the nation of Israel would be wiped off the map until 1947. They'd be scattered to the corners of the world. And Jesus says, you will not see me again until the day when they shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, it's not insignificant that the first time those words blessed are, is he that cometh in the name of the Lord were, was uttered during the triumphal entry. Recorded in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. One of the rare things that's recorded in all four Gospels. This, however, is not the event Jesus is speaking of here. Those who proclaim Jesus' entry saying, Blessed are ye that cometh in the name of the Lord, according to the Gospels at the triumphal entry, saying, Hosanna, were only a multitude of Jesus' disciples. It was a relatively small group of people. And at this time, in fact, the Pharisees were were there. The, The group that Jesus is speaking of to his adversaries, they were there, and the Pharisees told Jesus, tell them to be quiet. Tell them not to say this. Tell them not to proclaim this messianic blessing upon you. Because they all knew it was a messianic phrase. They all knew it was the phrase that would be said by the nation of Israel when Messiah came. And they're saying it of Jesus. And so the Pharisees said, stop them from doing this. And Jesus said, if, if I stop them, the very rocks will cry out. That's not what we're speaking of here. His adversaries did not say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord on that day, the triumphal entry. Zechariah spoke of this day, however, and this is why we know that they all knew what Jesus was saying here. That Jesus was saying, there's coming a day where you will call me Messiah. Zechariah 12, verse 9 and 10, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The day when Messiah will be delivered, will deliver his people from all their enemies is being spoken of here in in Zechariah 12. And when the spirit of grace is poured out upon the nation, when the hearts of stone are replaced with the heart of flesh, when their misery is turned to joy as they see their Messiah as he descends from heaven to deliver them from their enemies. The Bible says that this Messiah will have pierced hands and pierced feet, that he will be pierced because he's Jesus of Nazareth. And on that day they will mourn for him and they will finally cry out as one, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That was the moment that Jesus is describing and the Pharisees knew full well what Jesus was saying. That they would reject him today. But when Messiah came the way he promised and they expected, it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth. So this is the nature of the kingdom of God. Let's apply. Point number one. 
the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force of fundamental change. As Jesus describes the kingdom of God, he describes it as a great tree in whose branches the fowls lodge as the leaven in three measures of meal. But in each case, starts very small. The process of the seed to the tree happens on many different levels. In our own hearts, we might see the seed to the tree process as taking roots through the understanding of the gospel. Our understanding, we receive it as a small seed. We may not know a whole lot, but we get it, that we're sinners, that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, that, that our sin has separated us from a holy God. Sin being anything I say, anything I do, anything I think that is contrary to the will, the word, the character of God. So I'm separated from God and I can't dig myself out of that hole. The Bible says that there's nothing I can do to get myself to God. There's nothing I can do to dig myself out of the hole of my own sin. But that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we are separated from God because of our sin. But God sent Jesus into the world and Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says God took your sin and my sin and placed it on Jesus. Jesus took my sin and Jesus took your sin. And because he took our sin, there is provision now for us to be saved. But not everybody who has the provision to be saved, will be saved. For the Bible says that though Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the entire world, so that Jesus paid for the sins of every man and woman and child who will ever live before or after, for uh, in the past or in the future on that day, we still have to accept the gift for ourselves. And so the Bible says that if any man will accept that gift, will recognize and believe with all of his heart, not just believe mentally, not just acknowledge that it's true, but truly appropriate it, assimilate it, make it his own, invest in it with all of his heart, that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, that you cannot be saved from your sins by your own effort or by your own works or by anything that you can or can't do. And then a very important next point that Jesus rose again from the grave. If Jesus is just a dead savior, then he's no good to us. If Jesus offered eternal life and said, you can be saved by believing the gospel and then went to the grave and stayed in the grave, then he is no good to us as a savior because he is dead. How can he offer eternal life to others when he doesn't have eternal life himself? How can he say he has power over death and over sin when sin and death conquered him? But because he is alive today, sin and death cannot conquer him. He has proven that sin and death cannot conquer him. And he has thus validated that what he has promised is true. That if you will believe with all of your heart, if you will accept and invest, put all of your eggs in his basket and recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he was buried and he rose again the third day to give you eternal life. And if you will accept that simple message, you will be saved. And that's that small little mustard seed. And that's simple. And there's not much to that. But those of you who are believers, who have been living as a believer for any number of years, knows that that simple gospel message, though it's sufficient unto salvation, it's sufficient to, to, for a man to pass from death to life, is only the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to know. There's so much more to grow. And that's the idea. The small mustard seed becomes a great tree. 
And it bears fruit in us and it changes us from the inside out. It changes our perspective, our desires, our priorities. Like leaven and flour, the gospel of the kingdom fundamentally changes the essence of who we are. And as it grows, it makes all of those who receive it something more and greater than they were before. As it affects not only the recipient, but those who interact with him will be affected as well. The kingdom of heaven does the same on a corporate level, that as believers come together in the body of Christ, the local church, over which Jesus promised the gates of hell shall not prevail, another fundamental change is the introduction of this into society. Believers come together into a fundamentally changed group. They no longer function as an individual unit, but as a part of a greater whole for the purpose of something beyond their own and with abilities greater than their own. And we consider, as we did this morning, churches form a bedrock for a stable society and a civilized culture because when a church begins to grow, the kingdom of God begins to grow and the influence of that kingdom grows in the area and the church becomes a fundamental force for good in whatever society or culture it's in. But if we zoom out even further from a macro perspective, the kingdom of God is still small. Just as we live on a day-to-day basis, having fundamentally, having been fundamentally transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the world moves in an evil direction, sinful direction, ignorant of the life which is in Christ. The local church and the church at large is still very small. It's still an insignificant part of this world's population. Communities continue to function in rebellion even though there there are, are churches within it that are living the distinctions of the gospel. The kingdom of God is humble and meek and minimal. The church of God is called not to fight back, called not to resist, called not to be an oppressive force. It has transformed lives and communities and cultures, but it has always been resisted and has not to this point fundamentally changed the nature of mankind in the direction for the world. But there's coming a day when, just like in our hearts, that little mustard seed comes to be a great tree. There's coming a day when this little seed of the kingdom will be established by Jesus Christ and it will become everything that it's been called to be. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and everything, all the way down to the very operation of the created order, will be fundamentally changed. So that there is coming a day where, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 11 verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. This is the kingdom unto which we have been called. And if you have accepted the gospel, this is the kingdom into which you have been adopted. An unstoppable force of fundamental change. And if you're a believer, then that change has been given to you. The question is, is it realized in you? Or are you living as a citizen of this world? Are you living just like them? If you're a part of this church, then that change has been given to you. Are you living out that change? Are you taking advantage of it? One day that change will come upon this world and in that age you and I will rule and reign with Christ and His kingdom. But until that day, we are recipients of its benefits. And I keep using this preposition if because... Few there are who will find this kingdom. 
Point number two. Point number one, the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force of fundamental change. Point number two, the kingdom of God is a narrow road entered exclusively through the narrow gate of exclusive truth. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There are billions of people in this world trying to get into the kingdom of God their own way. In fact, only a very small minority of the world disbelieves that there is a God over this created world and that he offers to his followers a paradise one day. But Jesus wants us plainly to understand that so many who stand before him on the day of judgment, having tried their very best, some with all of their lives, all of their effort and all of their money, to enter into the kingdom will not be able to, not because they could not, but because they would not. Because they rejected the path forged by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus warned specifically today of the Jews. But let us think more broadly. There are many who have sat in churches heard the gospel, walked away, calling it a good message, nodding along in agreement to the the reality of the gospel who have never committed their hearts to it. They agree that it's true. They like it. It makes sense. Gospel, exclusive group, special club, whatever you want to think. Good message, pastor. Thanks. And then they go home and they try to earn their way to heaven. There are many in other religions who see Jesus as a prophet, a good man, an important figure in history, but not as Messiah, who will never see the kingdom. On a day 2,000 years ago, someone asked Jesus, are there few that be saved? And Jesus said, the way is narrow, straight. But make no mistake, the way is also open. And nothing is hindering any man, woman, or or a child from entering in but himself. Point number three. First, the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force of fundamental change. Second, the kingdom of God is a narrow road entered upon through the narrow gate of exclusive truth. Third, the kingdom of God is found by an exercise of the will to all who will genuinely seek it. You are being created by God. Excuse me, you are a being created by God and given a free will with which to exercise unto God or away from God. Love is a choice and God wants us not simply to serve him, but to choose to love him to that end. When Jesus died on the cross, his precious blood was sufficient to pay for the sins of the entire world. I mentioned first John two, two already, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. Jesus' atoning sacrifice satisfied God's wrath for the whole world, unlocking the gate for any and every man, woman, or child to enter. So passionate is the plea for men to find and enter the gate that we read as some of the final words in the Bible written by the Godhead. In Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is the thirst come and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. 
Jesus paid the price so that anyone can freely, by an exercise of their will, by submitting themselves to the gospel, take of the waters of life. Jesus cries for Jerusalem in Luke 13, citing how often he would have gathered them into his kingdom. And it is not that he was not willing, but it was that they were not willing. And such is the legacy of an unbelieving heart, the self-righteous heart, the idolatrous heart. And yet the nature of the kingdom of God is not hid from us. It is a kingdom clothed in humility, small in its beginnings. But make no mistake, it is an unstoppable force of fundamental change in you, in us, and one day it will touch the whole of creation. It is a kingdom, the path of which is a very narrow road, entered upon through a very narrow gate, not a hidden gate, but one that calls upon us to be last, to be humble, that we might be exalted by God, that we might be first. It is a kingdom for those who love God. For those who will say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. For those who believe the Lord is our Savior. And the question this evening is this. How do you relate to the kingdom of God? As Jesus has taught through the kingdom's character, are you a part of it? Or are you just a bird in the branches? Have you been playing the game, trying to get there? Many that will say unto him, Lord, Lord, have we not done great things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Are you one of those? Are you one of those who lodges in the branches of the tree, who loves the the fruit of the kingdom, who loves to interact with it, but who is not a part of it? Or are you a part of the kingdom? Has it fundamentally changed you? Has there been that fundamental transformation of your heart to where you say, yes, I believe. Yes, I am in the kingdom. Yes, I'm through the door. Yes, I have received that fundamental leaven, that fundamental alteration of my character. Are you living it out? Or have you looked at the world around you and longed for Egypt, as the scriptures would say? Longed to be back in that place with all of those empty promises. And so you've lived lived as as a child of God, but you've gone back to some love for the world. The nature of the kingdom of God as an unstoppable force of change, access through a narrow road, found by an exercise of the will. This is the kingdom that Christ has offered. Let's not just identify it, but let's live it out individually and as a church in this dark world. Let's close in prayer.